you would join me and take out your Bibles and turn to Luke 18. As you know, we're taking a break from uh, Acts, but we're staying with the same author for a couple of weeks that bracket uh, the U.S. National Day of Thanksgiving. Uh, Luke 17 was last week. Uh, Luke 18 uh, is this week. As we turn to the Lord's word, let's go to him in prayer one more time. Almighty God, we bow our hearts before you. As we come before your word, Lord, would you open our minds and open our hearts to joyfully receive what we are to believe about you, as well as to understand what duty is before us as your people. Oh, Father, may we not only agree with your word, but also by the power of your Holy Spirit and in humble reliance upon Christ, would we delight in doing what you ask. Not primarily because we are your servants, although we are, of course, but most importantly because we are your children. Father, so speak to us through your written word that we may live our lives in a manner worthy of the glory of your incarnate word, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're sticking with the overall topic of Christian manners. Uh, That was the title of uh, last week. Uh, Jesus and the Ten Lepers. Um, This week, uh, the title is When It's Wrong to Say Thank You. I mean, last week we looked at when it's right to say thank you. Uh, This week, when it's wrong to say thank you. When it's just not right to say thank you. Now, here's the question. Uh, When is it wrong to say thank you? Well, I can pick out one right away, and it's one that drives me nuts, not as much as it did, but still. It's when someone says thank you to someone, and instead of someone saying, you're welcome, I mean, how hard is that? Thank you, you're welcome. What often do you hear in response to thank you? Thank you. Where did that come from? The proper response to thank you is, you're welcome, not another thank you, but... Today's text is not going to deal with the trivial of grammar or polite social conversation. No, Uh, today's text will show us from Scripture where it's really wrong, wrong to your detriment to say thank you. Last Sunday, we learned again when it's right to say thank you. We saw last week that there were 10 men that were exposed to Jesus. One man ended up trusting Jesus. There is a world and an eternity of difference between someone who is exposed to Jesus and someone who is trusting Jesus, who has not some kind of general relationship with Jesus, but, but for lack of a better word, a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Last Sunday, we heard the words of the late Dutch theologian G.C. Burkhauer when he looked at the Heidelberg Catechism and he said this, grace is the essence of theology, gratitude is the essence of ethics. In other words, grace is at the, ethics, is at the essence of what you believe and grace is at the essence of what you do. 
Last week, we saw a man say thank you to God. Jesus points it out. It was only this man. Why was he the only one, this foreigner? Indeed, there is that vertical dimension of thank you. But have you noticed that people who can say thank you to God can also say thank you to one another? People that are grateful to God can be grateful people. You know, people who are grateful for God, who dwell on gratitude for the amazing gift of salvation in Christ, those kind of people are really enjoyable to be around, aren't they? Why? Because their gratitude toward God spills over into how they relate to other people. You've heard it before, the vertical affects the horizontal. It's no more true than this instance. Someone who's grateful to God will be grateful to others and they will be enjoyable to be around. A word about prayer. Um, look with me at uh, Luke 18, 1 through 8. It's the parable of the either the unjust judge or the parable of the persistent widow. And, and um, one of Jesus' points there, of course, is to practice continued prayer to God, the God they know. She doesn't know this unjust judge. There's a comparison to God, but, but she knows God and she's going to pray. Or he, he's talking to his disciples that you know God, you know who he is. So if the unjust judge finally gives in and relents, that's not like God. He's not going to finally give in and relent. He's going to answer. That's who he is. And so we're, we're sticking, as it were, with the theme of prayer as we move into verses 9 through, through 14. And just a few moments ago, we, we heard that good definition of prayer from our shorter catechism. A good definition of prayer. It's not complete um, it's even more fleshed out than the one from the children's catechism. Help me out, kids. What is prayer? Prayer is praising God, giving thanks for all his blessings, and asking him for the things he has promised in the Bible. But nonetheless, it's a good basic definition of prayer. Keep that in mind as we explore the prayers in our text. You know, prayer is not only, in its essence, God's people communicating with him, but prayer is also a diagnostic tool. It's true that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Oh yes, it's true. Jesus makes that very clear. But it's also out of the heart that the mouth prays. Keep that in mind. Now in telling the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, Luke, the writer of the third gospel and the writer of Acts, likes to tell the story in twos for the purpose of comparison and contrast. Remember at the beginning, there are two women expecting a baby. There are two old saints waiting for the Messiah. Later on, there are two sisters welcoming Jesus into their home. And in particular, Luke likes to compare and contrast how two people respond to God. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons, you know, let's, let's title it more accurately, uh, the parable of the two sons. Um, here is the Pharisee and the tax collector. You see, two men went up to the temple to pray. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Look at with me, and I'm going to read the last part of verse 7. Luke 18, verse 7. Excuse me, uh, verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, 
Will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now in our text, there are not just two men, uh, two prayers. There are two different prayers. They're not just different because they're prayed by two different men. They are entirely, completely, fundamentally different at their core. One prayer brings the condemnation of Jesus. The other prayer brings the commendation of Jesus. Put differently, one prayer is hated by God the Father, and the other prayer is loved by God the Father. Well, let's begin, first of all, by looking at the intended audience. Uh, Don't miss the setup here. He also told this parable, verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, this is a parable It's a little bit different. It's not like many of the parables where Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. But here, there's a parable being told, a story being told to illustrate truth. You know, indeed, there were then, and there certainly now, people who trusted in themselves, or another translation says, confident of their own righteousness. It's a problem in the first century, Actually, it was a problem centuries before. It's a problem today, and it will continue to be a problem. It's almost the default nature of man to trust himself. Man is good. How many of us have had conversations with people? Their basic core belief is, I'm good, man is good. I can trust myself. So Jesus is teaching particular people. And of course, it appears that there are Pharisees around, but he's also speaking to his disciples. Why? Because there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of his disciples, just like there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Let's continue. What's the scene? They go into the temple to pray. The temple, the central place of Jewish religious life and worship. There was no more holy place in the holy city than the temple and there's no more holy place than the holy of holies and you know that there's like there's different courts away from that holy of holies you know it's it's no surprise but as the story unfolds it's going to be shocking to the original audience i mean it, it starts off 
two men went up into the temple to pray. That's no surprise. One a Pharisee, no surprise. But ah, the surprise is going to start. And the other a tax collector. And as it unfolds, it becomes more and more shocking. And yet here we are in 2020, I think a bit numb to the shock. Why? We've had 2,000 years of, of Christianity, 2,000 years of church history. But in the, to the first century hearer, to the original audience, like the ones to whom Jesus is speaking and the ones to whom are reading Luke's careful account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is shocking. Why? Because in that day and age, the Pharisee would be the good guy. He does it right. And the tax collector would be the bad guy. He does it wrong. Now, let's, let's be clear about this. In terms of evaluating some outward acts, yeah, the Pharisee does good. A lot of good things. And And as a matter of just evaluating the tax collector, he does a lot of bad things. He extorts, he cheats. You've heard guest preachers, RUF ministers, preach about um, uh, Jesus going into the home of tax collectors. You've heard them talk about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Remember, The original here is the Pharisee is the good guy, the tax collector is the bad guy. But Jesus will reverse what people were thinking then and Jesus continues to reverse what people may be thinking today. Let's examine in some detail the two prayers and we'll do that for each by considering three things. The man who's praying, his prayer, and then the perfect and flawless evaluation of Jesus. Jesus' judgment is supreme. There is going to be no appeal beyond Jesus. You can't file a complaint and go to some circuit court of appeals when it comes to Jesus. When he bangs the gavel, it's over. It's done. And we will see his perfect, flawless evaluation. The first prayer, verses 11 and 12. The man, a Pharisee. Remember... He's one of the good guys. And the Pharisee is to be commended. He's orthodox in his belief. He takes the law of God seriously. His prayer, his prayer of thanksgiving, if you listen carefully, it's not a prayer. It's an address about himself to God. And maybe, as we see as he compares himself to the tax collector, it may be for the benefit of that tax collector over there. But in no way, by any definition of prayer, is it a prayer. You see, he's comparing himself with others. That's his standard. And guess what? He is faithfully meeting that standard. There's a great article out there called Pharisees with Low Standards. Their view of God's law It's sort of counterintuitive. They actually lowered the standard of God's law to something manageable, something that they could do. And he is saying in in who he is, is I am moral and I am religious. Uh, Again, uh, listen to what he says. I thank you. God, I thank you. Sounds good, right? I thank you. That I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's saying, I am moral. Um, 
I heard an expression a couple of years ago. I think it's a new one. It's a humble brag. You know, it's, it's when in, a, in an article you sort of, or in a talk with somebody, you kind of brag about yourself, but you appear to try to be humble, but you've got to tell about all the good you're doing in order to make a point. And it's, it's a humble brag. I guess that's the expression. That's what he's doing. He's moral. He's, he's religious. He is... The fast was once a year. He's fasting twice a week. The tithe was on a certain part of the income, and he is saying everything I get. He's not satisfied with God's standard. He's going, as it were, above and beyond. He says, I am moral, I am religious, and by the way, I'm grateful. He thanks God, he nods to God, he gives God a little bit of credit. Or does he? Let's look all the way down to verse 14b. Because this is where Jesus' evaluation comes in. It's where Jesus, the judge, judges. It's the second half. I tell you, he's talking about the tax collector. This man went to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus' evaluation I tell you, emphasize, emphasis. He says that this man didn't go away justified. He's, Jesus is saying it's wrong to say thank you in this case. Jesus condemns him. He goes home not justified. Oh yes, he was justified in his own eyes, but not justified in the eyes of Jesus. Well, that's the first prayer found in our text. It's the prayer that Jesus condemns. It's the prayer that God the Father hates. It's wrong to say thank you like this. It's wrong to brag to God about how good you are, how good I am. What arrogance. What pride. Let's take a look at the second prayer. And it begins with but, the conjunction that sets up the contrast. Verse 13, but the tax collector, the publican, He's a collaborator with the Romans. He's wealthy. He's the outsider. What on earth is he doing in the temple? He evaluates himself. Notice, he stands far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He evaluates himself not as a sinner, but the original text would cause you to say, the sinner. He's not looking at anyone else. He's only looking at himself. He is, as someone recently reminded me of a great expression, he's the worst and the first. He's the chief sinner. He's the worst sinner. It's all he sees, himself. There's a colleague of mine with the Navigator's U.S. military minister years ago, he was probably one of the most holy guys I knew. He took God seriously. 
He prayed. He, he was obedient to the nth degree. And I remember when I would get together with him, he lived in San Diego, so I only saw him maybe once or twice a year. I said, Paul, how are you doing? Every time, better than I deserve. What a great answer. When a few of us young guys were um, stupid enough to engage in a conversation at that moment, we said something like, but Paul, you deserve, I mean, you're a good guy. You obey, you deserve. And Paul's response was, I deserve hell. It's grace, it's mercy from beginning to end. And notice again his prayer. What does he ask for? Does he thank God that he's not like anybody? No, he, he asks for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Interestingly, the, the tax collector has a better doctrine of sin than the Pharisee. Get that through your heads. Get that through my head. The, the tax collector has a better doctrine of sin than the Pharisee. You see, Jesus, remember he quotes the Old Testament, my house shall be a house of prayer for how many people? What kind of people? All people. The tax collector begs for mercy. He pleads for mercy. In the words of the temptations from 1966, he ain't too proud to beg. The, the, the Pharisee is too proud to beg. Remember toward the end of Luke, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, he's surrounded by two men, one on his left and one on his right, and you know the story. One comes to faith in Jesus, one doesn't. One receives mercy, the other doesn't ask for it. And what's the evaluation of Jesus? We see it at the beginning of verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. I'm going to do something that I hope is a good thing. I'm going to, it's not terribly long, but of all the commentators in this particular text, I, I found the comments of John Calvin very helpful. And specifically, he's saying commenting on, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Here's what Calvin says. The comparison between these two men is not exact. For Christ does not merely assign to the publican or tax collector a certain degree of superiority, as if righteousness had belonged alike to both, but means that the tax collector was accepted by God, while the Pharisee was totally rejected. And this passage shows plainly what is the strict meaning of the word justified? It means to stand before God as if we were righteous. For it is not said that the tax collector was justified because he suddenly acquired some new quality, but that he obtained grace because his guilt was blotted out and his sins were washed away. Hence it follows that righteousness consists in the forgiveness of sins, as the virtues of the Pharisee were defiled and polluted by unfounded confidence, so that his integrity, which deserved commendation before the world, was of no value in the sight of God. 
So the tax collector, relying on no merits of works, obtained righteousness solely by imploring pardon because he had no other ground of hope than the pure mercy of God. Did you hear that? Calvin is not saying that the tax collector in this case is now better than the the, uh, Pharisee. Calvin is rightly drawing an all or nothing thing here. Jesus draws an all or nothing. Now, a lot of our problems is we call black and white when it's not black and white. And that's a bad problem. And we're all capable of it. We all sometimes, an answer needs to be yes or no, and we come up with some other answer. But here, Jesus himself says, one man goes home justified, and the other man goes home not justified. That's the second prayer found in our text. It's a prayer that Jesus commends, God loves. You know, Paul writes this to the Corinthians, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Jesus commends the man who asks for mercy and condemns the one who doesn't. You see, the difference between the two men is not that one is righteous and the other is sinful. No, both are sinners. However, only one knows it. And as a result, only one cries out for mercy. You know, I've been challenged in this text. Do I trust Jesus enough that he's the one whose commendation means more to me than anything? Am I, are we looking for commendation from the world? Are we even looking for commendation from one another? Do we trust that Jesus really does see? Do we trust that Jesus really knows the truth of any and every situation? (laughs) What peace and joy is there in knowing that Jesus' evaluation, his judgment is perfect, flawless, exact, right on the money, right on target? Jesus does not commend the person who commends themselves, as Paul says. He commends the person who cries out for mercy. Well, let's look at the general principle. We see it at the end. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says it three times, we read in the Gospels. Uh, It's kind of like he announces his upcoming death and resurrection three times in Mark 8, 9, and 10. Kids, when Jesus says something three times, do you think it's important? Absolutely. When Jesus is pronouncing seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees, he's calling them blind guides. He's saying you tithe all of this minutia, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Jesus says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Earlier in Luke at the parable of the wedding feast where 
Somebody issues an invitation and the invitees choose the places of honor. You know, you get invited to a, a feast and then you go in and you decide where you want to sit, not the host. He says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And again in our text, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Three times. It's underlined. It's in bold. It's highlighted. Not only does Jesus say it three times, but the apostles say it. My goodness, they must have been listening to Jesus. They must be teaching what he himself taught. James and Peter, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter continues in his letter, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Well, my friends, when is the proper time? Only God knows. Do I trust Him? Do you trust Him? Does God know what He's doing? So here's the question. Can you ask it? Am I a sinner? Am I in desperate need of mercy? We're going to sing in a moment, Thy mercy, my God. And and the, the full title is, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. So what's the theme of your song? Is it God's mercy or is it your righteousness? Paul writes to the Roman church, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I believe God is speaking, of course, to all of us in this text. If you do have the bulletin handy, go ahead and pull out repenting always. Repenting always. I'm going to go ahead and read a portion because it's so important. And it ties in so well directly with this text. This is the late James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, who started the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, the Philadelphia Conference of Reformed Theology. Uh, Many look to as a mentor and a father in the faith. And he says this, beginning in the the third to last paragraph. I have a good friend with whom I meet most weeks, and one thing he has shared with me is that he never begins a prayer without saying something like this, Lord, I am a sinner. I sin all the time in my thoughts and in what I do. I need your forgiveness always, and I ask for it now. Whenever we have talked about that prayer, it has always struck me that it is a genuine prayer. Since the very act of coming before a holy God and living our lives in his sight reminds us that we are not holy and that we stand before him only by his grace. That is how we know that the prayer of the tax collector was a true prayer and the prayer of the Pharisee was not. Both men prayed to God, but the Pharisee's prayer was about himself and his own righteousness. The tax collector prayed, God, have mercy to me, a sinner. 
Another friend of mine says that the trouble with Christians is that they do not believe that they are sinners, but we are. And unless we know it and confess it, we will never be much use to a world that needs not so much the evidence of righteousness in us, which they can copy by their own fleshly efforts, as living demonstrations of God's grace, which they need but cannot copy. People who know they are sinners, who confess it and who depend on God's grace, will live increasingly holy lives. But they will hardly be aware of it, and they will certainly not be talking about it all the time. They will be too busy marveling at the mercies of our God and concerned that others might come to know Him also. Wow. I want to be around somebody like that. And I think you do too. If you think what separates you from other people is that there's some goodness in you, that is pride and arrogance. But if you think that the only thing that separates you from somebody else, is that you have received mercy from God, then there will be no contempt for others, but only compassion. And you will be so desirous of other people coming to know the faithful and merciful and just and righteous God that you know. We've considered two prayers, one general principle. Let's now conclude with three brief statements. First, our text presents a warning. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Now or later, guaranteed. It's on the dashboard of our life. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And... You can't go to the car dealership and have them insert the computer diagnostic thing and remove that warning. It's going to be there before you. But our text also provides a promise. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Is that not great or what? Don't exalt yourself. Be exalted by God. Humble yourself before the Lord. So our text presents a warning, it provides a promise, and thirdly, our text presses home a great need. You see, it's humbling to ask for mercy. It's it's humbling to plead for mercy. And guess what? That's the point. You see, as believers, we always have with us two significant needs. First, a humble realization of our own sinfulness. And second, a grateful acceptance of God's mercy and grace. You know, we're coming toward the end of 2020 and what a year it has been. But indeed, we can still thank God for his mercy this year. And as we look ahead to 2021, we should ask God for his mercy As we are now in Advent, I encourage all of you as individuals and families to read the Magnificat, Mary's song of thanksgiving, a hymn of praise, Luke 1, 41 through 46. In it, Mary speaks of God's power being demonstrated how he lifts up the humble, he brings down the proud, and he remembers mercy. 
That's the climax and conclusion of the hymn. God remembers mercy. He keeps his promises to be merciful. And that's what we've seen, my friends, in our text. God remembers mercy. He gives to those who ask. Speaking of manners, God responds to those who say to him with a sincere desperation. I beg your pardon. Think about it. A casual, old-fashioned way to say, excuse me, I beg your pardon, could be one of the greatest prayers that any one of us utters today to God. I beg your pardon. Those of you who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, don't be too proud to beg for God's continued mercy. You see, the prayer for mercy is a prayer that Jesus commends and a prayer that the Father loves. And when you receive His mercy, you'll head home knowing that your sins have been forgiven, that you are justified, and that you will be welcomed to that great eternal home, that unending day of worship and delight as the creature and the creator are reunited and sin is no more. May God be pleased to fill grace and peace, this church, with all kinds of people whose posture in prayer is not one of self-focus, Not one of self-righteousness, but one rather of looking to God for mercy and trusting in the righteousness of another. Trusting in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. O great God, our Heavenly Father, we have come into your presence this morning and we are humbled. For we have seen your glory revealed in your word. And as we examine our lives, we confess that we often maintain the attitude of placing our confidence in ourselves and looking down on everyone else. Oh, Father, we so often place our trust and hope in our works and merit as being the means of obtaining and maintaining a right relationship with you. Oh, Father, we admit that we have sinned and fall short of your glory. Even our best works are tainted by sin. Our hearts are deceitful. Who can understand them? Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. We come to you as the sinner, not looking to how we stand relative to those around us, but rather how we stand relative to your holiness and your perfection. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for your abundant mercy poured out to us in the person and through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. O Father, your word is indeed a two-edged sword, for it both wounds and heals, and we praise you for the wounding and healing it has done to us this very day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for declaring through your word that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, more than words can express, we are grateful for the justification that is ours only through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
respond to what we have heard today and also